Good afternoon and welcome to the 54th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we have a public health update with public health expert Esther Chernak of Drexel University and a discussion of improvisation and disaster research with Tricia Wachtendorf, the director of the Disaster Research Center at the University of Delaware. You can catch COVID calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID calls recorded as podcasts on soundcloud.com. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of disaster or at COVID calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for guests and future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. On Friday, I'll have an update on the situation in Chile with Gonzalo Basigalupe. As of today, May 28, 2020, there are 5,931,112 confirmed cases globally of COVID-19, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 5,647,961 cases reported yesterday. 1,712,816 of those are in the United States, up from 1,692,786 reported yesterday. There are now a total of 101,196 deaths reported in the United States, up from 99,783 deaths yesterday, and that's a topic I'm going to spend some time reflecting on at the beginning of tomorrow's COVID calls. As a way to bring some humanity to those numbers, I've been reading a life story every day, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, Immigrant Who Worked at Tyson's Dakota City Plant for 37 Years Succumbs to COVID-19. This appeared in the Lincoln Star Journal, Nebraska, May 3rd, 2020, by Dolly Butts. Whenever Vien J. Kunin and his wife, Hu, received a certificate that recognized their quality of work or celebrated one of their milestone anniversaries at the Tyson Fresh Meats plant in Dakota City, the couple would frame and hang it on a white wall in their kitchen near the satellite TV, where he liked to watch Thai and Lao channels. They were pretty proud of where they worked, their daughter Suzanne Kunin Nguyen of Sioux City, Iowa, said Thursday by phone. They would get a certificate for every five or ten years that they had been there. Vien 69, was born in Laos. He immigrated from the Philippines to the United States with his wife in the early 1980s and built a life in Dakota City. He worked at the beef plant on the production line for 37 years, chasing the American dream. Last month, while an outbreak of the coronavirus silently raged at the plant, he developed a cough, then a fever. Less than a week later, Kunin, the father of a son and three daughters, was dead. He wasn't afraid. He didn't think that was going to harm him, Kunin Nguyen said of her father, who loved to fish, hunt, and spend time with his 13 grandchildren. As of the time of the publication of the obituary, health department officials had not publicly commented on the reason behind a recent spike in COVID-19 cases in Woodbury County, Iowa, and Dakota County. As of Thursday, that week, 669 workers had tested positive, according to a source familiar with the situation, who spoke on the condition of anonymity. That number at that time represented over 15% of the workforce 
at the 4,300 employee plant and equaled over 40% of the total coronavirus cases in the two counties. Kunin had underlying health conditions, including diabetes, but Kunin Nguyen said her father still did all of the yard work and woke up at 4 a.m. to report to the Tyson plant for his shift. Since neither her father nor her mother had any sick leave, Kunin Nguyen said they went to work when they were ill. They would never take a day off. Their goal was to work hard, buy a house, and they had the four of us, she said of herself and three siblings. When her father couldn't work due to a doctor's appointment or surgery, she said her mother would put in double shifts to make up for his absence. When her father reached age 62, she said he continued, considered retiring, but then decided to keep working. They were told a month or so ago that if they continued going to work every single day that they were scheduled, at the end of three months, they would get hazard pay. So him and my mom continued to go to work, Kunin Nguyen said. Kunin Nguyen said her father developed a light cough on April 19th, but didn't immediately think anything of it. Two days later, she said her father was running a temperature above 100 degrees. He got up and went to work, but was sent home. When Kunin Nguyen talked to her father that Wednesday, the day he was tested for COVID-19, she said he seemed fine. After her mother returned home from her shift around 1 a.m. that day, she found her husband in his recliner. She was unable to wake him up. Kunin Nguyen's older sister touched her father's hands, which were ice cold. She felt him for a pulse, but couldn't detect one. My mom said, why won't he wake up? Kunin Nguyen said. An ambulance crew arrived at the home and just shook their heads, according to Kunin Nguyen. She said her mother looked at her sister and asked, why aren't they doing anything to him? My sister said, he's already gone. My mom was just shocked, she said. Kunin Nguyen said her family inadvertently learned that her late father had tested positive for COVID-19 from a news report. On April 25th, the Dakota County Health Department, in a statement released to the media, announced that an unidentified Dakota County resident over age 60 had died from COVID-19. That resident was Kunin. We're like, so then they know he's positive? Nobody told us, recalled Kunin Nguyen, who immediately contacted the director of a Sioux City funeral home. Kunin Nguyen said the funeral home was pushing to have her father cremated the next day, but she said her family wanted to wait until Monday. They hadn't even had a chance to process that Kunin was gone. She said her family chose her father's urn through an exchange of text messages with the funeral home, a process she said was upsetting. After speaking with her siblings, Kunin Nguyen said they decided to have her father's body transferred to another Sioux City funeral home. When that funeral home went to pick up her father's body, Kunin Nguyen said the initial funeral home refused to release it. Kunin Nguyen said she, her mother, siblings, and 21-year-old niece were able to see her father before he was cremated, cremated but were not allowed to touch him. We got the closure we needed, said Kunin Nguyen, who said her family hopes to eventually hold a traditional Buddhist funeral service in memory of her father. Kunin Nguyen accompanied her mother to the plant to pick up her father's last check and notify the human resource department that her mother was taking a month-long leave of absence. My mom said, when we get up there, they're going to check our temperature. Kunin Nguyen recalled, I walked through the whole thing with my mom and there was no one taking temperature. That is a fact. They need to look out for their workers. These people are not indispensable, she said. They're going to work to bust their butts off, and people like my dad, who have been there for years on end, they're just treating them like pawns. Okay, let's turn to our discussion for today. I'm really pleased that we'll begin our discussion today with a return visit 
from Esther Chernak. And let me reintroduce Esther in case you haven't caught her before on COVID calls. Esther Chernak is a professor in the Department of Environmental Health at Drexel University School of Public Health. And she has a position in the Drexel University College of Medicine. She's the director of the Center for Public Health Readiness and Communication at Drexel. Prior to joining the Drexel faculty in 2010, Dr. Chernak worked at the Philadelphia Department of Public Health for over 25 years. Esther, thank you for making time to come back on COVID calls. Happy to be here. So how are things with you and how are things in Philadelphia right now? Uh, things are fine with me. Thanks for asking. Things in Philadelphia, I think by most accounts are improving in terms of COVID cases. I think after uh, some difficult weeks, months, in, in fact, um, uh, we are now at a place where I think we have a relatively consistent downward trend of newly reported cases. Uh, that's been true for the last week or so, and also newly reported deaths, even new hospitalizations. So I think um, most, most people think that the peak, at least of this wave, is behind us. And folks in Philadelphia, the mayor and the health commissioner, are actually talking about loosening things, moving to the so-called yellow phase on June 5th, with the expectation that the downward trend continues, there'll be a loosening of our social distancing um, regulations and policies. So things are better. I think there's a hope that hospitals will have a chance to regroup. There's still issues around PPE now, but I think the bigger question is, assuming we can get to a place where we're opening up, um, how do we keep fires from flaring? How do we react to newly diagnosed cases to prevent major you know, increases in transmission around those cases? And how do we prepare for what could be bigger, more sustained transmission in the fall? Well, I want to ask you about what, what we're seeing in the rest of the country, but let's stay with Philadelphia for a minute. You're describing a situation that's different from one last time we talked. And yeah, probably. So how can the public health department work right now? What kind of steps are take us inside there are they taking right now to keep this trend going the direction that you're describing? So I think you know the the explanation for the for the improvement has been the social distancing, kind of the draconian um levers that we've been under in terms of reductions in uh, mobility and closures of schools and of uh, all things congregate. Um, and I think, you know, that has worked. It's the way it's worked around the rest of the country. It has worked in Philadelphia. I think Philadelphia has benefited from the fact, and even the whole southeastern Pennsylvania region has benefited from the fact that we are rich in healthcare resources, so they weren't overwhelmed even at some of the worst days, at least of this wave. How do we maintain that is very tricky. I think it's a combination of a gradual, careful loosening of components of the social distancing. And I think we're seeing the mayor and the commissioner weigh some of those options now. Um, you know, there's a, a loosening of restaurants. You can now order at a restaurant without having to order online, but you still can't eat in a restaurant. There's a conversation about whether or not restaurants with outdoor seating will be open. And if that's the case, how uh, things that will be open up will, will most likely have social distancing requirements where participants or patrons will be six feet apart if possible. Mask wearing will become a convention wherever that's possible. So those are the ways in which I think will open up. I think that uh, the health department has worked very, very hard to try to deal with outbreaks in congregate settings. And I think we'll see, in addition to those, you know, wide, wide or broader community recommendations, we will see targeted 
interventions with respect to nursing homes and prisons and other congregate care settings, manufacturing settings. And I think we'll see more proactive screening and surveillance, maybe testing, more testing of asymptomatic folks. Um, and I think hopefully what we'll see is a ratcheting up of um, better case investigation for all comers, all cases, which would involve identification of contacts and then the targeted tracing of those contacts and quarantining and, and perhaps even testing of those contacts. And the, the notion was that if you use social distancing, that crude, difficult tool to slow transmissions down to a point where you have a manageable number of cases, then you can use the resources you have to do that more targeted case investigation and contact identification which in theory wasn't possible when the number of cases was just so large. So talk to me for a second about masks, because I'm seeing very wide variability on the street. I mean, from people who are wearing very sophisticated masks and gloves walking down the street um, to, I have to say, a large majority of people where I'm living who are not doing anything. Um, should we be thinking that wearing the masks and following that kind of um, advice at this time is is really going to help s- slow the spread? I mean, should people have a lot of confidence in that? Yeah, it's a good question. It's funny. I, I recently emailed our mutual colleague, Chuck Haas, about masks, about the data. And he said, oh, you really want to go down that rabbit hole? That was his first response to me. But... <laughs> That's a very Chuck Haas answer. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so he's our environmental engineering colleague. Um, so there's a couple of different types of masks. But I think the masks we see people wearing out and about are kind of face masks, uh, surgical masks in the healthcare setting, but they're loose fitting, um, generally disposable, though some are made of cloth masks that cover the nose and the face. And there's actually decent evidence basis for um, their utility in a situation in a situation like this. They they certainly cover people's noses and faces, and so as a result, block. Um, droplets that might be covered, you know, might be laden with virus. So when people with the virus are sneezing and coughing, it prevent the mask. If they wear a mask, it prevents the mask prevents them from expectorating particles and droplets and virus out into the into the air, where someone else can actually be exposed to that. Um, and they probably do also protect the wearer from the perspective of uh, preventing splashes of droplets and maybe even a little bit of inhalation. So the, you know, there's the the adage. Your mask protects me, my mask protects you, and that's mm. a big part of it, that's source reduction. But there's also probably some degree of protection for the wearer. And there are some studies that have looked at this, and there's probably a 40 to 50%, maybe even higher effectiveness of, of masks, even simple cloth masks, as well as, you know, professional surgical masks. So they absolutely work in community settings, and I think they make a difference. And they've been shown in a couple of these other countries that preceded us in this epidemic to probably have made a difference. Those are different from the respirators that you see healthcare workers wear and some people in the general public wear, which are really filtering tightly fitting masks mm-hmm. that have to be fit tested to the wearer. And they fill, you know, the N95 mask, which is the one we see very commonly, is one that is ostensibly, you know, if fit tested appropriately, filters out over 95% of particles that are at least, you know, three microns in size. So those are appropriate for healthcare settings, particularly ones where Patients are generating small, small-sized aerosols. Somebody being on the verge of being intubated or receiving a respiratory treatment that might generate those types of particles. So the bottom line is, masks in concert with social distancing, hand washing, and all these other non-pharmaceutical interventions have a huge role to play in protecting us. So at the at the municipal level, then there's going to be a lot of public health communication 
we, we should expect in the coming months, like really habituating people to this, to wearing the masks and keeping them on and even in the hot weather and, and that kind of thing. Is that what is happening inside the health department? Now? I think so. I, I think for sure. And um, that is the case in all interior spaces and all workplaces, certainly in all healthcare environments, the clinics where I work, that has been the norm. Everyone masks, patient, staff, provider, everybody masks. And that'll be in the norm in workplaces, all places that are basically indoors. I think outside is a little bit potentially uh, more permissive, um, depending on how far apart people are. Um, and we're going to have to learn about is are all outside or exterior kinds of uh, environments the same? Uh, there is one, there's a recently published report of a pool party, outdoor pool party, where ostensibly, where apparently there was transmission. I don't think we know enough about what went on there. Um, but I think in general, wearing masks for sure the norm. And I think we're going to have to move cautiously to figure out where you, where you don't need a mask, because I think we're not sure yet. So let me ask you about the national picture. And I guess the question that's been on my mind is, do we even have such a thing as a national picture of COVID-19? Because, you know, I read that that <clears throat> excuse me, I read that obituary. And so some of the states now that were, um, I don't think Nebraska ever closed down, as far as I know, South Dakota didn't. Um, and they now have uh, really high growth rates, Nebraska, Alabama, I think Missouri, uh, Arkansas, Georgia. Yeah. The so Carolinas. Tell me, I mean, isn't can we even does it, does it make any sense to talk about the national rates of infection at this point? That's a great question. I struggle with that because you follow the national data and it's so heterogeneous and it's really multiple different stories. It may be as many as 50 stories and it may be as many as, you know, 150 stories. Even yeah. within larger states, there is different degrees of transmission. Um, I think it's hard to know. I think the national data mask a lot of what's going on. You have real, real substantial improvements in transmission in the northeastern states that were heavily affected only three to, you know, four to six weeks ago. Um, but the middle parts of the country, more rural parts of the country that had actually not seen a lot of this, are it's where a lot of this is expanding now, all the states that you mentioned. And it's quite interesting. It's a, it's, why is that happening? It's, it's, it's probably a combination of things. It's our general mobility. And, you know, eventually the virus gets introduced into all manner of places. And in the absence of policies and regulations like reducing social interactions, et cetera, um, you're going to see transmission. And a lot of those rural areas, there's those epidemics are fueled by meatpacking plants and agricultural manufacturing facilities that have become hotspots. And then they bleed out into the community. So I think we have multiple different epidemics, um, even in the same way that just eight weeks ago, you know, the, the, the activities on the West Coast in Colorado, the experience in Northern California and Oregon were very, very different than what happened in the Northeast. And there are many folks who believe it has a lot to do with how early those the West Coast locations initiated social distancing. I, I just I feel like politically that's that's so challenging because we want to be able as citizens to be able to think nationally. I, I don't think there's any dispute that the federal response wasn't what we wanted it to be, but we need to continue to talk about that response. It's not like it was a one-time thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. So should I be thinking about this as a sort of urban rural thing? And so there's a rural picture and an urban thing, or there's a, a, a states that acted early and a states that acted late kind of way of, of looking at this. I, I'm sure there's not an easy answer, but I'm struggling with how to talk about this at a level bigger than a given community. Yeah, I, 
you know, I think, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we might have talked about urban rural disconnects. I think I think we're going to learn that eventually, you know, that that will matter less. I think I think the policies that different jurisdictions implemented to contain the virus will will be the the differentiating factor. Um, I mean, there are many people who do think it's all about when people decided to shut the doors and, you know, and cut mobility. I think that's a big part of it. Um, and there's a fair amount of data suggesting that that has a huge, uh, a lot to do with it. Some of it has to do with the degree to which the public complied with those recommendations. It's very, very hard, I think, to prevent transmission in very, very densely populated areas, particularly like the New York cities of the world where you're highly dependent on mass transit. And there's, you know, there's just the population density really promotes transmission. I think those are tough situations. But I think even in rural areas, it's too facile to say that they're spared because, um, this is such a highly contagious virus. One introduction in a church, which has been, which is a super mm-hmm. spreading kind of right. uh, venue, uh, can cause a huge outbreak. And as you pointed out, a meatpacking plant or a manufacturing facility in the absence of good protections in those places can foster transmission as well. I think, I think the next couple of months will be very instructive. We'll have a good sense of, of where this virus can spread. All it needs is another person who's susceptible. And um, sadly, there's plenty of those. We've talked about testing from our first conversation on here, and I want to bring this back up because now for the first time I'm talking to people um, who have had uh, tests, infection tests, and then they've also had antibody tests. So for this week is the first time I've talked to people who've shared with me that kind of information. Um, so what are you hearing out there and what's your confidence level in those in those tests at this time? Yeah, there's a lot of questions in clinical situations about the utility of antibody tests and which one. And I think, you know, I think just broadly speaking, if we had great antibody tests, that would be helpful um, because it would allow us to identify who's infected. Um, And I think they can be useful in zero surveys. They can be useful in the context of assessing someone who may have had a clinical illness that was compatible with COVID, um, maybe not, a, maybe didn't have access to a molecular diagnostic test during the acute illness to see whether or not that illness was COVID. The challenge with antibody tests is that they don't tell you who's acutely infected. So you, you at least the ones we have now, the, the antibody tests tend to be positive after the infection. So that's one key thing to take away. The other problem is just the specificity of these tests is highly variable. And so you'll hear on the news, at least the tests that we have available today, um, have big accuracy issues. And when they're used broadly in the general population, there's lots and lots of false positives. The, the, um, even if it's a fairly specific test, if there's not a lot of disease in the community, the predictive value of that positive test is relatively low. So you'll have the, the test is a positive is more likely to be a false positive or equally likely to be false and true positive. And so you can't really conclude much in terms of broad zero surveys. So I think we're struggling to figure out how to use Anybody tests. Um, um, I think that there's still a role for them to use in the to be used in the context of zero surveys. I think as tests get better and more specific and more accurate, we'll use them more confidently in in conjunction with molecular testing to get a better picture of who's infected here. I mean, I think we're all seeking to just expand our testing armamentarium because we need more tests. Um, but antibody testing is probably not going to help us from the perspective of identifying acute you know, incident cases in a population. The other problem with antibody testing is that we don't know enough to say whether uh, somebody who has prior infection or antibody to this virus is immune 
There's a temptation to include that. There's a desire to assume that. But we really don't know enough about the immunity picture to say that that's going to be the case. So, you know, there's a people talk about immunity passports. Oh, if you're immune, you could do X, Y or Z. You might need a mask. Um, I think we have no idea whether reinfection occurs, which antibodies are protective. And so it's. I think the antibody story is still working itself out. Hopefully in another couple of months, we'll have a better feel for the uh, the specificity of these tests, their value, and maybe we'll have some better technology in terms of more ac- accurate testing. Every time we talk, I learn a new public health term from you, testing armamentarium. I, thought I made that up. Oh, okay. Oh, that's been, <laughs> that's, that's not a like one. a shoe leather thing. That's not. Oh, I like that though, because it is, it is, it does convey something very important, which is the sort of array of strategies. And this is a segue to the, um, to the last question I'm going to ask you today about um, officials in public and private settings who over the next 60 to 90 days are going to have to make some commitments and some tough decisions about reopening and their schedule of reopening. So even when a governor says it's okay, let's presume in a school system, for example, or in a higher education setting, they're going to have to then have um, a range of options at hand and, and they're going to have to decide on some. So, what are the questions that those leaders should be asking public health officials right now to develop the best strategies? Yeah, these are very tough questions. And I think they're happening at different levels of education. You know, there's a whole group of folks <clears throat> thinking about K through eight or K through 12 education. And then there's higher education, which is a little bit different. Um, you know, I think that the folks involved in thinking about a reopening campuses in the context of say college and universities, higher education, um, you know, the issues there are how vulnerable is our campus? Um, how can we quickly implement? Is there a way for us to implement a surveillance system for COVID on our campus such that we can identify cases quickly and um, remove them from situations where they're going to transmit to other students, faculty, et cetera? And so then the conversations are how do you bring students back to live on campus safely if they're going to live on campus? And I think the other issue is how quickly. How, how, what are the curriculum requirements for bringing people back? Um, do you have to bring everybody back in the same way that you did two years ago? Are there curriculum necessities like lab, lab-based courses and other things that really need to be done face-to-face? And can you have a hybrid model um, which gives you the flexibility to have students on campus, off campus, not have everybody reside on campus, and also potentially... Um, you know, shift gears in October, November, if you have to, you know, shut things down again in, this, in the setting of a second wave. So I think, I think you know, the, the public health considerations for colleges are, you know, what are the risks attendant in the uh, educational program and the residential program? How do you minimize those? How do you integrate a surveillance and testing program for COVID that's going to be unlike anything we've ever done before in routine college life? And I think it's going to be really critical for colleges to interact with local health agencies because they do surveillance, not just for COVID and other respiratory infections, but they do syndromic surveillance. They'll give us a good signal for whether there's respiratory illness in the community. And that can be useful to university trying to figure out if there's disease in the community, how aggressive to be recommending social distancing and masks, et cetera. So I think universities are struggling with this. There's lots of incentives for them to want to reopen and resume normal functioning, but it's going to be challenging. Esther Chernak, thank you so much for your time today coming on COVID Calls, and I hope we get a chance to talk to you again in the next couple of weeks. Um, and I do hope this trend in Philadelphia at least continues in the direction that you, that you gave us today. So uh, we'll stay tuned to talk to you again. Thanks. 
turn now to my next guest, Tricia Wachtendorf. And I want to remind folks you're listening to COVID Calls and you can get your questions in. You can put those into YouTube live chat and you can also put them up on Twitter if you want to. Just tag me at US of Disaster. Some people would like to email me the questions in the middle of the discussion, which I really like. So you can email those to me at sgk23 at Drexel. Edu. Let me introduce Tricia. Tricia Wachtendorf is professor of sociology at the University of Delaware and the director of the Disaster Research Center, which is the oldest center in the world focused on the social science aspects of disaster. Over the past two decades, her research has focused on multi-organizational coordination before, during, and after disasters, transnational crises, and social vulnerability to disaster events. Dr. Wachendorf has engaged in a quick response fieldwork after events, including the World Trade Center attacks, the tsunamis affecting India and Sri Lanka in 2004, Japan in 2011, Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane Sandy, as well as earthquakes in China in 2008 and Haiti in 2010. She is also the co-author with James Kendra, who has been a guest also on COVID calls, of American Dunkirk, the waterborne evacuation of Manhattan on 9-11, and that book is out with Temple Press, and I can't recommend it enough. So, Tricia, thank you for coming on COVID Calls. Thanks so much, Scott. And I just want to say thank you um, for organizing these, for inviting me. Um, it's just been a, a fantastic dialogue to listen um, to over the past couple of months as you've tackled these issues, and it's great to be a part of it. I appreciate that, and um, it's definitely been something that uh, where we find hope in times particularly when data and expertise seem to be kind of constantly under attack, this has been an hour every day where we can maybe find a place to not feel bad about knowing things. Um, so I want to ask you first, I've been asking every guest, how are things going? Where are you and how are things where you are? Well, I'm at my home in Pike Creek, Delaware, uh, on in Newcastle County, the Northern part of the state. Um, Things are going okay. Uh, we've we've hit a point where um, the numbers have gotten better here, uh, including the uh, level of uh, PPE that's available in hospitals. Um, there was a little bit of a, a uptick a little bit a few weeks ago in in one of the southern counties, um, but we are approaching now June first, where there are substantial changes that are going to be taking place with respect to reopening. Um, numbers of people who can gather at particular points, the elimination of the 14-day quarantine for uh, self-quarantine for people who are coming in from out of state, uh, beaches reopening, that kind of thing. Uh, so we're at a, a really at a pivotal point in in seeing where we might be in the next couple of weeks, as opposed to right now. So a lot of your research Trisha, has focused on uh, the concept of improvisation. In disasters. So I just want to start by asking if you could kind of orient us to that term in the context of disaster. What does it mean? And maybe give us some examples of how, how it works in the kind of cases that you look at. Sure. Um, and so when we start thinking about this idea of, of improvising in disasters, it's really bringing us back down to the the points where people are organizing during an event, as opposed to thinking about practicing and preparing prior to an event occurring. Um, it in, can involve transformation in real time, um, really thinking about small embellishments to the way people act, the activities that they're engaged in, 
Um, sometimes the way they are structured and the people they're interacting with, the relationships that they have. Um, it can be the resources that they are using. And again, sometimes in very uh, small ways and in sometimes very large novel approaches to a situation. Um, so, you know, we, uh, you had mentioned the, the boat evacuation book and uh, as well as some of our research on 9-11. Um, lots of examples there of, of people improvising facilities that they had to use at the last minute as those were destroyed, um, working with new people uh, who are coming into the city in new arrangements that they haven't worked with before and trying to figure that out. Um, it might be a new approach to the way someone tackles a problem. Um, and that can be short term. And sometimes it evolves into a, a very elaborate system. During during 9-11, we saw um, the uh, the whole establishment of a process of searching for remains um, property at the Fresh Kills landfill site in Staten Island. Um, that's something that wasn't just a, a moment in time, but really structured the operation. Um, and those are situations that we see time and time again in disasters. Um, you know, be it more natural uh, induced hazards uh, like hurricanes or, or earthquakes, or even thinking about things that are more technological or human induced. So how did you have this insight? Do, do you remember a moment or some things you saw in disaster where you thought, well, that wasn't in the script, that's not in the plan, and yet people still did it and it became a routine very quickly. Do you, do you, can you call that case at hand or cases where you first thought, okay, there's something really here? Well, I, I think that, um, you know, I wish I could take credit for that, but there's a, a, a half century uh, history of looking at disaster improvisation uh, from the researchers associated with GRC, uh, including, you know, the founders, Corentelli and Dines and, and all the way up to the present. Um, but, you know, I think in every single event, you see this element of, of creativity. Uh, if I think about back to when I was a master's student, um, there was a situation where they had to improvise a, a ring dike around the city of Winnipeg and use buses um, to, to do that and, and you know, made a, a ring dike in three days that, you know, you normally couldn't make in three months. Um, you know, over and over again, if you're thinking about those bucket brigades that form and, you know, I think especially as we're looking at uh, COVID-19 and the crisis that has emerged, we've seen many similar examples of improvisation. Um, I think those who are new to the field might be surprised, but I think in every disaster, um, you know, people become surprised by uh, the way people come together, um, engage in this pro-social activity. Um, you know, the, the boat evacuation that we saw in Manhattan of 9-11 of, of half a million people evacuated by boat was absolutely remarkable. But we've seen that in previous events, um, people coming together in different ways. And we've seen that subsequently. And I think we're seeing a lot of examples of that now as well. Just want to follow up quickly about the 9-11 case, because, I mean, again, it's really, really great book. And the data you collected to do that book was was Tremendous. What are one or two of the stories from that research that really underline the way these practices that are improvised become routines very quickly? Yeah. Um, and so we, uh, my colleague Jim Kendra and I, we interviewed uh, about 100 people associated with the response. Um, this was a subsequent research project after our initial work uh, on the 9-11 attacks where we were in New York City for much of 
um, the first two months of the response, began hearing little snippets of, of this boat evacuation that had occurred. Um, and some of the things that really stood out were um, the, the extent to which everybody simply said at the beginning, I just did what needed to be done. Uh, and we didn't take that as seriously at, at the beginning. We like, there's got to be more than this. Let's dig a little bit deeper. Um, and, and over and over again, we heard the same thing. And it was really people who had um, a similar, that saw response in a, in a similar way. So it wasn't just improvising on by an individual, but improvising as a collective and seeing the same problem and seeing the same solution based on their knowledge of the city, based on their commonalities in, in working on the harbor, um, the relationships with each other or similar people uh, in, the, in the harbor community. So this boat evacuation that, yes, was a result of, of a Coast Guard's call for all available boats, but people were responding before that. Um, and they began to put the puzzle together. They began to see things in the same way because of that, that commonality. Um, and I think the, the flip side of that were some people in organizations who were very resistant to, to certain types of improvisation because of their organizational culture, because of the way they saw problems. Um, an example of that is uh, several complaints about park uh, service personnel who were complaining about the boats tying up to, to trees and, and knocking down fences. And, um, you know, the boat operator saying, are you, are you kidding me? Like there's two buildings have just come down and you're worried about me tying up to a tree in Battery Park. Um, but, but again, two different people from two different or two different sets of people from two different organizational cultures seeing a problem in a very, in a very different way. Um, and, and that kind of helps us understand, I think sometimes why improvisation can work um, and be facilitated and, and sometimes why a response can seem disjointed where there can mm -hmm. be conflict um, and understanding that not everybody is seeing a problem through that same lens. I just want to stay with this for a second because thinking about New York City emergency management, is it that they hadn't thought of the boat operators at all or the disaster was beyond the imagination of their planning? Because what you've described is, of course, a body of practitioners who were total pros at their job, many of which with decades of years of experience acting collectively, as you say. Um, but somehow not in a way that was on, I'm guessing, on any of the strategic emergency management plans that existed in the in the official records of the emergency operations of New York City. So, no. so there were some plans for um, a capsized ferry, like the Staten Island Ferry, something like that. Um, so certainly the use of boats for, for rescue purposes. Hmm. Uh, but there was no plan for a a wholesale evacuation of the city at that time. But I think that, um, you know, in looking in hindsight, it seems kind of obvious, but there were a lot of things that, that, that the other planning was taking place. So, um, you know, there's a focus on Y2K at that component. So organization and coordination, but on different issues. Um, even thinking about when the, the actual collapse happened, there was a lot of focus on the site um, on ground zero, on the on the response, on the on land, 
Um, and there was really a, an openness for those boat operators to figure that out for themselves and, and Coast Guard and working in conjunction with harbor pilots. And even though they didn't have um, a set plan in place, it was those relationships. It was the trust factor between the Coast Guard and the harbor pilots and, and the extent to which they interacted with particular vessels. And um, you might not work on this vessel, but you know that guy is not you know someone necessarily that you want to trust or something going up front and you have other relationships where um, you have a sense of, of those people, they've got it handled. I don't need to have oversight of them at the moment. Um, and so I think those relationships were, were really essential in that confined geographic area for people to, to figure that out. But we also saw that with um, the, the air traffic control system and having to ground the entire air system on the fly, something that had also not been done before. Huge level of improvisation um, with people who were working in their domain. You know, this is something that they knew. They knew how to do it. They were working within their wheelhouse um, and being able to imagine and pull on those relationships about what um, what kind of response they were looking for and, and could imagine at that point. So it's almost like finding bodies of experts who have talents that you just hadn't thought they were necessarily a moment because I'm thinking of the problem of the evacuation of the towers and there had never been, there had never really been a full scale evacuation test as far as I know, except for the 90, the bombings in the nineties. Um, but there it's a case where it's, it's people at their jobs. It's not a body of experts in evacuating who could come together to, to carry off this kind of improvisation. So I'm just sort of like thinking with this term. I mean, it's not that things are haphazard and they just happen to work out. It's that there's a lot of talent and expertise out there that just somehow gets implemented in ways we weren't expecting. Is that close? Yeah. And, and allowing that to happen and, you know, seeing where there are strengths in a community and mm. people have expertise in particular knowledge domains, you certainly wouldn't want me evacuating anybody by boat. Um, you'd be rescuing me in, in a minute because I don't know how to operate a, um, you know, a, a kayak, let alone anything else. Um, but, but all of us have certain areas of expertise, even if we're not deemed experts. Um, teachers know how to deal with kids. Um, and uh, somebody who might work in an office knows how to, to manage people, knows how to get things, know how to arrange things and put them in place. Um, so it's, it's understanding that people have particular domains of expertise and um, keeping them operating in that area. Um, you know, I heard it after the Calgary floods a number of years ago, there were examples of people evacuating people by combine and large, large mm -hmm. farm equipment. Um, you know, again, it's, it's people imagining that I have the equipment, I know how to do this. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to come in and 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 really fill this gap in a way that I feel comfortable um, with the parameters and not trying to to overstep that. Um, great example, though, of um, you know, after Hurricane Harvey, uh, crowdsource rescue. Uh, which wasn't a group of boat operators, but but rather a, a, a number of people who knew each other who were um, working in, in 
software web development mm-hmm. um, and be you know created a map to try to connect people who were looking for help, looking to be rescued, and people who did have boats. Um, so they were not experts in 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 boat operation, but they were they had that skill in in being mm-hmm. able to imagine um, how to put together a map, put together a platform that could be used. Um, and, and, and because it was effective, because it worked, people used it, um, and it began to take off. I want to remind people that you're listening to COVID Calls. My guest today, the director of the Disaster Research Center at the University of Delaware, Tricia Wachtendorf. Um, Okay, so I'm glad we talked about that in, in detail because then that helps me think maybe differently about what we're seeing with COVID-19. So I want to ask you about that. What kind of improvisations are you seeing? Unexpected combinations, uh, expertises arising. What are you, how are you seeing it? Yeah, um, and I think that, again, we're seeing uh, similar examples of that. People imagining different types of products or strategies um, sometimes out of creativity and, and inspiration and sometimes really out of necessity. Um, a lot of examples of that in, in the business sector where um, businesses have had to shut down, uh, pivoting not only to drive by pickup, but thinking about the fact that let's say they have uh, strong relationships with their suppliers and not only can they provide meals, but they can provide the paper towels, they can provide soap, they've got eggs, they've got, um, uh, to some extent, hand sanitizer or toilet paper, if you can't find that in the store. Um, You know, thinking about those limitations on certain supply chains and the fact that they can provide it because they're using a restaurant supply chain, uh, as opposed to a commercial grocery supply chain. Um, Co-op ventures that have emerged in, in not necessarily providing um, food to restaurants, but can people sign up as a, a share or a co-op uh, and and have food delivered to them, fresh produce, for example. Um, creating new products like uh, some of the, the craft beer um, vendors making hand sanitizer and, and supplying that to um, uh, healthcare workers, even if they're not selling it, but but thinking about a way that they can support the community. Um, there's other examples of people in community self-organizing to provide food to those who are stuck in their home, uh, who are health compromised and can't go to grocery stores. Um, that could be examples of, of neighborhood groups where people are good at self-organizing, sewers, making masks. Um, a lot of, of universities have these maker spaces that they've developed with CD printers uh, and imagining this is a great way for us to use that for the common good and, and make these for healthcare professionals. Um, so I, I think we see a lot of positive uh, improvisations on that front. But I, mm-hmm. I think it's also important to note that we can't improvise our way entirely out of a disaster. Um, mm-hmm. And so uh, a disaster, by very definition, is going to involve some level of improvisation. Otherwise, it you know would be fine and normal. Um, but it also involves a degree of planning. And if you've planned really well, that allows for... Um, a manageable level of improvisation where you can fill in the gaps. Um, But if you are improvising so much um, and particularly in certain domains uh, that that doesn't make for an effective response and you're not able to fill those gaps. And one of the areas that I think that has been really troublesome um, 
and has caused me a lot of, of anxiety and, and stress, both uh, personally and as a, as a professional in this field, has been the improvisation in terms of communication and messaging um, and how that has been so haphazard and so ad, ad hoc, um, especially from the, the beginning of the response here in the United States, but I think continuing now. Um, that that level of improvisation has has really had lasting negative impacts um, on on how um, people are making decisions or how people are going to particular uh, sources of information and how they're making sense of it. Let's let's stick with this for a second. So can you give me a particular example? I mean, I can think of too many examples of um, missed communication or inappropriate communication. Um, throughout this entire episode. Do you have one particularly in mind or a particular case that helps us see the problem of improvisation in disaster communication? Yeah, and I know that you had talked earlier with um, your your first guest about masks. Um, that is one thing that I, I think um, the the inconsistent, inconsistent messaging from the beginning has really... Uh, dovetailed to many of the problems that we're seeing right now and has really polarized some of the discussion about um, when to use masks, where to use masks. Mm. Um, initially, uh, there were you know, very clear messages about how masks are not effective um, here in the United States. And we had colleagues, we had students, graduate students um, who were from China and were very clear, I don't make, you know, this doesn't make sense to me. Um, when we are not, when we're not feeling well, we wear a mask. Um, this is common practice. It doesn't make sense. I'm going to ignore this. Um, sometimes also receiving very, uh, um, negative stigmatization when they would wear masks in public, thinking back into February and early March. Mm. Uh, later, we began to hear more about exactly what they were saying, that um, cloth masks are okay. Um, you know, they do provide this protection, um, not as much for us, but for others. Uh, and we're still um, not encouraging masks because we want to save those, I mean, certain types of masks because we want to save those for healthcare professionals. Well, that, that whether it's a decision, but kind of not having a clear message, um, having different people say different things, um, ends up having people doubt the information that comes later. Um, same thing right now. I've, I'm hearing six feet apart. I'm hearing 12 feet apart. I've heard 20 feet apart. Um, I've heard wear a mask when, when you're less than six feet apart and it can't be avoided. I've heard wear a mask and be six feet apart. Um, so, so this is, you know, we, we try to make sense of that as, as experts in the disaster domain, but for the everyday person, they are going to go back to the information that they trust they're going to hear um, certain messages reinforced and certain messages criticized. Um, I tend to get, you know, most of my information from public health information from the New York Times, from the Atlantic Monthly. I'm reading, you know, a certain type of information. Mm -hmm. um, other people are, are consistently getting their information from other sources, Fox News and others. Um, and so how they're making sense of this environment is very different 
from how I'm making sense of this environment. My friends, the social media postings I'm seeing are creating a, a worldview for me that is very different from their worldview. Um, and when there's these um, inconsistent messages, these improvisations in, in how we're going to communicate and what we're going to say, um, that has lasting impression on, on how people trust individuals, how they trust others, how they make sense of their actions. Is, is there something about this particular, about a pandemic or about the way this one has evolved that has, has just opened the door to those kinds of problems? Or do you lay this at the feet of um, the federal response and the way that response has worked and maybe it's maybe it's not so easy to disentangle those but i you know i've gone back and forth and back and forth how many times about trump's role in all of this and on the days i'm feeling glum i feel like it'd have been better if he just never had said anything um because i i think he's confused the message so many times and, and then there's other times where he drops out of my thinking entirely and i think we this pandemic planning was could have been structured in such a way that even an incompetent president wouldn't stand in the way of a good response. And I, I think we're going to need a lot more time to think about that. I, I don't know where you come down, where you come down on that. Something unique about pandemics or is there really a Trump effect in all this? Um, I think that there is, you know, I, I think there's no, no doubt that the messaging coming from the, the, the white house more broadly, but from, um, from Donald Trump has been problematic and continues to be problematic. Um, however, I think it's a bigger a bigger issue than that. I think that the media is culpable. I think that um, the the clarity of the scientific community sometimes is an issue because um, it can be difficult to to get a sense of of what we know and what we don't know. Um, I feel much more comfortable when when somebody is saying I, we don't know the answer to that yet, um, mm. as opposed to um, having a best guess and then that best gets reverberated and and retold and recirculated um, and can have negative consequences. Um, I think that that what's interesting here is is. Um, this polarization that has emerged as well. And, um, you know, in, in some ways it connects a little bit more with the idea of the corrosive community that we tend to see talked about with environmental hazards, technological hazards like Exxon Valdez or the Deepwater Horizon or, or even Fukushima. I know that you've um, looked at that event as well. Um, but but this lack of empathy towards the other side and these, these conflicts that are emerging, not only between families, but in different members of the community, it may be that some of that is because of the protracted nature of it. Um, but I, I see, um, I don't see these decisions as easy, but I think we are very quick to pass judgment about other people and their decisions on how to navigate really tricky information. Mm -hmm. um, there are some people who are, um, like myself, have been in, in little bubbles. Like, I don't know what's going on in the rest of the world. I've been in, in my house primarily for the past two months right. for an occasional hike on a trail where I don't see anybody or, um, you know, a couple of visits to a grocery store. So I'm, I'm really in my bubble. But I also know people who've been um, 
who've had COVID-19 and I know people, fortunately no one close to me has passed away, but I know people um, who are close to me who've lost others. Mm -hmm. And so this has a different sense of resonation to me in terms of my, my worry, my concern. Mm -hmm. Um, But I have students who are um, bagging groceries, whose parents have lost their job. And so they're taking extra hours Um, You think of people who are working in grocery stores who are delivering a package to me by um, from Amazon um, because I don't want to go out to a store, but they're assuming that risk. Not even thinking about the healthcare workers, but thinking about all the other essential workers and telling them then that they can't see their grandparent, um, that they can't celebrate their child's graduation. And for them thinking, I'm in there every day begging groceries for somebody. Um, why can I do that? Why is that okay? And not this. Um, in Delaware, as I mentioned, we've just moved to um, allowing 250 people to gather with permission, um, with masks, but um, you know that you know, to allow people to have graduations in, in particular, mm. Um, circumstances, you know, I don't really understand how that is, you know, how some of these things are safe and other things are not safe, like right. summer camp. Um, you know, I, I, I might think that summer camp is not safe, but, but then why is the other one? And somebody else might say, well, if this is safe, why can't I do something else? Um, and we are making this up as we go along and coming to very different conclusions based on the information we have and then being very critical of, of people because they're deciding. Um, yeah, I'm not talking about the people on the extremes. I'm talking about all the people mm-hmm. in the middle who are mm-hmm. just, you know, not wearing a mask when I get too close to them on a trail or, you know, going somewhere and having a gathering that's a little bit bigger and I'm not having anything and they think I'm crazy because I'm, you know, afraid to meet with two or three people at a, at a time. Um, I had a, a, a friend um, even today write a message. I don't know what um, to think anymore. If someone would just tell me what is the appropriate amount of worry for each situation, I'll worry accordingly. Um, you know, we don't know. We don't know how much we're supposed to be worrying. And so I think that's that's a real difference here. Um, as we're trying to make sense of this as a collective, um, what are the cultural norms? How is that going to change? Um, you know, how close, how far away should I be? If you go to our grocery store, we do this little dance, right? Like, you know, mm-hmm. where are you going? Which way am I going? Um, that's all being navigated. And um, it's, it's easy to kind of think about improvising particular resources and relationships but these larger issues of improvising cultural norms and expectations and values are much more difficult to improvise uh, in a short time frame. Well, let me ask you about time because um, I know that you know time. So this disaster, I've never seen the scale um, in two ways. One is the sort of global scale of it, um, except when we think of climate change, maybe not slow disasters, but disaster. And, and then also the, this extent of time, you know, that we're thinking, just as you're talking about, that it's gone on long enough already and will continue to go on, that there will be emergence of new norms in every facet of life, mm-hmm. seemingly. And maybe you've studied a disaster like 
like that. I'm not, I'm not sure. I can't call in my lifetime disasters that have, have allowed this much time and have gone through this many phases already um, that we've been able to, to look at them. So I don't know, I guess I wanted to ask you about, about that, about how you think of this in terms of um, how disasters proceed in different phases. And we do tend to think of them in phases and emergency managers very specifically think of them as proceeding through phases because they need to structure them. Um, new problems are going to emerge. Esther and I were talking about that earlier. We've got some tough decisions. Public school districts around the entire United States have got a very tough August coming up and a tough September. So I don't know. I, it's not even a good question. It's just to sort of talk with you a little bit about how you're thinking about the time frame of this disaster and what new problems might emerge as we go. Yeah. And, you know, three things immediately come to mind. One is, you know, I think about 9-11 and the changes that emerged, not just in the short term, but thinking about how that impacted um, the way we travel, the, mm. the um, uh, <clears throat> oversight in terms of, of um, the Patriot Act and, and some of the um, uh, other uh, um, larger legal constraints that developed, um, you know, if, if, you know, I know you talk about 9-11 in your classes and, and I do as well. Our students were, um, very young, uh, at the time. Um, and, and some of them weren't even born yet. Um, and so some of the things that have developed since that time period, uh, seem, you know, they can't imagine what it was like beforehand. Um, so I think we're going to see some some long term um, structural changes in terms of our expectations about interacting with each other, interact or the interaction and the oversight of of authorities. You know, you're talking about contact tracing. What are people's comfort level with that? A lot of people don't trust, um, uh, you know, governments and authority to have that information on both sides of the political spectrum. Um, you know, so what what will that involve? Um, I think about the the climate change example that you made. Um, I think that there are real questions about how do we tell that something is happening? Uh, that's a question that I've been thinking about um, over the past year. But, you know, many of us could see things coming together with COVID-19. But I think even a lot of us as disaster experts um, were caught off guard in terms of, of how large the impact was here in, in the United States and North America in particular. Um, so are we, you know, thinking about climate change? How do we communicate that something is coming before we get to a point where it's critical? Mm -hmm. um, I, I think there'll be some lessons to learn from that. And I think as we move into the fall uh, with the potential of having um, additional outbreaks and clusters and resurgence, um, some of the things that we ad hoc away and made decisions on in the spring, if I'm even thinking about it from a faculty member perspective, there's some forgiveness there because you're in the midst of it. Once we get to fall, there will not be forgiveness. Um, and I think that is true at all different levels, not only at, in higher education institutions, but also thinking about our expectations of government and different government agencies. You were caught off guard, okay, but fall, you better have it together. Um, and whether or not we'll be able to pivot in the same way come fall. I want to ask you about a concept that you've written about, um, and I'm going to just read a little bit from an article that you published in 2009. And you say in this article, you talk about trans-system social ruptures, 
Um, and, and I want to think with this a little bit about some of the, the global scale issues we're looking at here. And you say in the article, um, trans system social ruptures, again, introduced by Cornelli and others who you talked about earlier, describes events that reach beyond societal boundaries and disrupt multiple social systems. In such cases, impacts extend across national political boundaries, spread quickly, and initially have no known central or clear point of origin. Um, really provocative and seemingly very applicable here in this moment. Is this the kind of thing we're seeing here? I mean, a, a rupture that's disrupting social systems, transborder systems, migration crises, on and on and on? Absolutely. And, and you can think about it in terms of um, disruptions that cross societal boundaries um, between different countries, but you can also think about it in terms of those um, systems, those cross-border systems that rely on each other. I'm originally from Canada and um, that's, you know, the, the border has been closed to um, all but essential travel uh, for the, you know, the past month, month and a half. Um, and there are healthcare workers who still travel um, across the border because you have workers in, in Ontario, for example, who serve um, hospitals and work in hospitals in New York. Um, there is a, a supply trade that goes across the border on a daily basis. Um, thinking about economic systems and how they're tied together, thinking about um, uh, the, the healthcare system, thinking about people who live in, prox in, you know, in proximity to the border, um, tourism um, stopping in those areas. So it's about both um, crossing international borders, but also how a disruption in one system can have an impact in another cross-border system to another cross-border system. Um, all the trade that the U.S. is involved with, it's not only when we talk about economic impacts, that's not only the, you know, the restaurant down the street or the, the retail shop down the, the corner, um, but it's thinking about how that impacts international trade um, and, and the long-term implication for those systems. I was thinking back, you know, in the fall, uh, if you were following Brexit, in all of these stories that were being done about the unimaginable hardships that were going to be caused to the supply chain in Europe um, because of Brexit. And I remember feeling like pretty astounded as some of those were explained. And now I'm thinking that's, that was one country with a block of other countries. And we're talking about this now literally in the way you've just described it as a set of global relationships. Yeah, and in a time where those relationships are, um, you know, strained, not only between uh, governments and, and nations that have um, had long-term uh, poor relationships, but also between countries that have historically very good relationships. Um, these are solutions that just like, you know, we've talked about in the United States, it can't just come from local entities or states. Mm -hmm. It has to be a regional approach. There has to be a, a, a role for the, the federal government and federal agencies in setting particular standards and messages. Um, but there also has to be an international strategy at play. Um, and unfortunately, we're at a time when uh, the United States is, is heavily impacted by this crisis um, but doesn't necessarily have those strong relationships um, between different countries that are trying to tackle the same issue. So I've been a little greedy with your time today, but I, I want to get one more question in if it's, if it's okay with you. Okay, so um, your 
directing the Disaster Research Center. This is a storied place. It invented a style of social science disaster research. Its founders did, and it carries on. And now you're stuck in your house with your Zoom platform. I mean, DRC is all about rapid response. It's If you go back through its archives and its photos, as I have, it's researchers in the field with tape recorders. That's mm-hmm. the way the work has been done. So I want to get your take on that and what you see. We've talked about improvisation and emergent new norms. Turn that on yourself a little bit. What are we seeing and thinking about now in terms of new strategies for doing social science disaster research? Well, I want to highlight um, with that one of the the strategies that we did take um, and being in the in the field right now is basically being on Zoom um, for a large component of it. But we have uh, a study right now looking at community impacts and adaptation in um, around the Delaware area. Um, so far, we have about uh, 250 people signed up for it. So our graduate students have pivoted and are conducting in-depth interviews um, with people in that broader Delaware community um, on the challenges that they've experienced, how they've made decisions, some of the ways that they are coping. Um, so our quick response research doesn't necessarily mean us being, you know, boots on the ground, but it can be, you know, zoom up and running. Um, and, and really trying to, what's been interesting is as that has evolved, you know, we started in, in really April doing those interviews and we're continuing to do that, um, capturing the different moments where people are. Um, and then I also did a, a study with my students. Uh, another example mm-hmm. of improvisation is we were doing a qualitative research class. Um, none of them could do their projects because they were stuck in their house. Um, but we switched that to a, a study of looking at university student experience to, to this crisis. And, and they conducted interviews um, with their fellow university students um, to understand the challenges they were experiencing and, and some of the ways that they were coping. So um, we hope that, that some of those efforts, and I know my colleagues are doing great work as well on, on other topics, um, that we try to capture this moment um, not only to learn from that in the long run, but, you know, as we enter into the fall, what are some of the key lessons that we can pull away from? Um, so if we're dealing with this again in, in October to, to hopefully do things a little bit better. Um, since you put October on the board, I'll go ahead and pencil you in for a return in October because we're absolutely going to need to talk to you and see how the kinds of questions you're asking as researchers may already be moving um, in that direction. You had mentioned a couple times in our conversation today about the financial stresses that people find themselves in in this moment. And so it may become indistinguishable as we go from the disaster of the pandemic into the disaster of the economic, um, you know, recession, hopefully not depression that people will find themselves in. Um, any, any final thoughts or words? You must've been talking to a lot of reporters, I guess, in these days too, huh? Yeah. Um, but in terms of final thoughts, I, I really want to, um, you know, commend all the people out there who are doing such a important work, not only in the the research community, but also in the um, the broader community in in providing helps to their neighbor and their community. Um, uh, you know, help that we think about healthcare professionals; um, those are absolutely important. But the teachers that are out there, uh, I've got two kids who they've been able to pivot remarkably. Um, you know 
people who are delivering stuff to us, riding trucks around the country. Um, this has involved a real dedication and for sitting in my home, um, trying to understand it, 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 and especially doing some of the interviews that we've been doing, it's a real appreciation for the hardship that people are um, confronting, even if they haven't lost loved ones, the concern that they have about the well-being of their family members, uh, even if they're in bubbles, um, and and the fact that that we're continuing to move along in unknown territory, um, thanks to a lot of dedication of, of of people in you know my local neighborhood and yours. We've been listening to COVID calls, and you can catch COVID calls every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. You can catch it on YouTube Live, and then later as a podcast on the COVID calls podcast. I want to remind people tomorrow we're going to be talking to Gonzalo Basagalupe. He's going to give us an update on the situation, which has turned pretty serious in in Chile. So we'll look forward to talking with him. I want to thank Esther Chernak for the time she gave us this afternoon. Always great to speak with her and very enlightening. And Tricia Wachtendorf, I come away smarter every time we talk to each other. Thank you so much for all you're doing and for making time for this conversation today. Thank you. Stay healthy, everybody. 